Friends, would you open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7? We're going to read the tail end of Hebrews 7. We're kind of picking up the argument right at the very end, but it's going to make sense to us as we unpack it a little bit. But I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews 7, starting in verse 23. Hear now God's word. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray together. Jesus, if you live to intercede, would you do that now? Would you intercede on our behalf as we pray now that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word? We ask in your powerful name. Amen. Well, friends, we're in chapter 7, and basically the whole point of the last three chapters has been to show Jesus' superiority over the Levitical priesthood. Now, we got neck deep into that last week, and we said, please excuse us as 21st century Gentiles if we're not jumping for joy to learn that the priesthood has moved from the order of Levi into the order of Melchizedek. I mean, that, just as a Gentile, hadn't been a top priority for us, and it's hard to get excited about Hebrews chapter 7. But then we reminded ourselves last week that the Bible's story is our story, that we are swept up into the story of the world as told through the Bible, the true story of the world. And that means that every single person has a vested interest in the priesthood. The priesthood simply answers the question, how does a sinful person approach a sinless God? How does a sinful person approach a sinless God? That's the question of the priesthood. And when we ask it that way, we realize that every single human being is trying to answer that question. Every single human being, whether we would articulate this consciously or not, understands that I do things that I should not do. And I don't do things that I should do. And because of that, I carry shame. I'm ashamed of parts of my life. I'm ashamed of parts of my history. I try to cover and I hide those things because those feelings are very near to me. I might not know the difference between Adam and Aaron. I might not know the difference between Methuselah and Melchizedek. But I tell you, I know the subject of shame. That's a subject I can talk a long time about as a human being because it's very near to my heart and I spend a lot of time with it. That's a priestly concern. That is a concern about how the priesthood is going to work. Now, we can answer that question in all kinds of ways. We can try to be our own priests and we can get about the priesthood through our busyness or through our charity to cover the fact that we're ashamed of our lives. 
Or we can seek out a third-party priest. We can go to a witch doctor or we can go to a psychiatrist, someone who will cover our shame for us. Or we can try to abandon the priestly project altogether and dive headlong into materialism or a fifth agenda. However we're doing this and approaching this, all of us share a concern about the priesthood. All of us are asking the question, how do I cover shame and how do I approach God and live in harmony with him and with other people and with the world around me? Well, in our section today, in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer is going to put a sharp point on Jesus' perfection over the priesthood. There's been two glaring problems with the old priesthood. The priesthood under Levi, two problems have reigned throughout that priesthood. The first is they keep on sinning, those priests, because they're human. And the second is they keep on dying because they're human beings. And where the sons of Aaron kept sinning and dying, Jesus doesn't. And here's why this is relevant to us. Jesus' sinlessness and his deathlessness win us the two ways that he mediates for us. That's a very complicated thought. We're going to unpack these two things. Jesus, because he does not sin and never did. Jesus, because he doesn't die and will not die. He stands as a mediator between God and us. He is the new and better high priest who answers this question, sinful people before a sinless God, and he intercedes for us in two very distinct ways, and we just want to look at what these two ways are. The first way that Jesus intercedes for us is by his death. Jesus mediates, he intercedes, he answers the question between us and God because he dies for us so that we can live. Now Jesus, he's a sinless sacrifice. We read that in verse 26, look at this. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted. And because of that, as such, when Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice, verse 27, he did this once for all. Our sin and our shame, if we come to God in confession and repentance and we say, I acknowledge I have this dirty heart we spoke of last week and I trust that Jesus alone can take it, Jesus takes the whole of our sin on himself because he has no sin that he bears that he has committed and he pays for the whole of it in his death and that sin and shame is taken away once and for all. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, we've spent so much of our lives in sin and shame. This is really, really hard for us to believe that this can be taken away once and for all. I imagine it's kind of like this. I've never had this experience, but I imagine it's a surreal experience when you finally pay off your mortgage, right? When your your house is paid off and you own the thing outright because you've been paying on your mortgage for the past 30 years and you're kind of on autopilot with this thing, right? You budget, you set aside money, you mail the check. You budget, you set aside money, you mail the check. You budget, you set... Every single month is like that. And I imagine 
When you finally get a notice that says you've completely and entirely paid this debt, you're free from it, you're probably still writing checks for months to come because your mind is so attuned to that. I'm just sending bonus checks to TD Bank because I've just always done that for 30 years. I have a habit of it. And the reason we might do something like that is very simple. We've been in debt for so long, we cannot possibly imagine what it looks like to be out from under it. Friends, I tell you that that is the truth of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. We have spent so much of our lives in sin and shame. We've spent so much of our energy hating ourselves and things about ourselves and trying to hide those things from other people and God. We're virtually on autopilot when it comes to our shame. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've lied about something or you've kind of fudged something or you've spun the truth on something to paint yourself in a better light and then after you did that and walked away from that situation, you realized it just wasn't a big deal to begin with and you didn't have to fudge the truth. That's the autopilot of shame. We all have done that because we do that so often, we fail to see ourselves even doing it when it comes, even when it's not even necessary to do those things. It's hard to imagine a world in which we do not bear our own shame. But I tell you, on the authority of Hebrews chapter 7, that this is now a world in which the dullest sin that we commit every single day and the darkest sin that we would rather die than for anybody to know the truth of, the whole of it has been placed on this sinless sacrifice, Jesus, and paid for once and for all. And you and I, we no longer bear our shame. We're out from under it. We don't carry it. The whole of it has been paid for because Jesus intercedes for us by his death. That's the first way that Jesus intercedes for us. That's the first way that he stands between us and God as our priest and as our mediator. Let's look at a second way that Jesus does this because I think that we're more familiar with the first. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But I don't know how much time we spend thinking about this second way that Jesus intercedes for us, not just by his death, but Jesus intercedes for us in his life. Look at verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's my question. Do I believe that Jesus sits beside his father and that he prays for me? Do I understand right now Jesus is beside his father praying for me. We've learned a lot about what has happened to Jesus since he died and rose from the dead in the book of Hebrews. We learned that he has passed through the heavens, chapter 4. We learned that he passed beyond that curtain, that tabernacle curtain, into the Holy of Holies and God's very presence, Hebrews chapter 6. And we know that Jesus has now sat down at the right hand of his father, Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 8. Jesus is there now, here as we 
we sit here, he is seated next to his father, and that throne room scene is described in Revelation, and it's hard to keep track of the metaphors that come at us. There in that throne room scene, there is thunder, there is lightning, there's a sea of glass, and there's fire. There are angels, and there are elders, and there are creatures who are all bowing down and worshiping the Lord God Almighty. And at the center of this glorious scene that will capture our attention for all eternity, the Father sits on his throne, and the Son sits at his right hand, and they're speaking to one another. The Son to the Father, the Father to the Son, the Son at his Father's right hand. He has his Father's absolute attention, and the Son has much to say because he is speaking to the Father about you and about I. He is pleading for, interceding for, praying for us. This is such a stupendous, hard-to-believe concept that the writer to the Hebrews, he's already told us this twice. He told us this in chapter 2. He told us this in chapter 4. Now he cycles back to tell us in chapter 7. I tell you that the Son is with his Father as a living mediator. He lives before his Father to intercede for us. He is our mediator. Now, I want to jump into the middle of this to clarify something. Because I think when we hear the word mediator, I think our minds go to like a negotiator or a referee, right? You only get a mediator involved because you've got maybe one or two parties who have lost their cool with one another, and they can't work it out, and so someone's got to kind of step in between and help referee between the parties. And so we think Jesus has done his once-and-for-all sacrifice, but now the Father is still kind of upset from our residual sin that lasts, and Jesus is there now to pacify those things. I kind of think about it like our childhood when a a father gets angry and he kind of tells his kids to make themselves scarce and everybody runs outside and you're kind of waiting for dad to cool off and then you lean over to your little brother and you say, why don't you go inside and see if uh, daddy's ready for us to come back inside. The little brother, he's become the unwitting mediator, right? Because he's going to step inside and if dad's not ready, he's going to absorb the wrath of your father. But if he doesn't, the coast is clear and everybody can come inside. That's not what's happening here. God is not the dysfunctional, angry dad, and Jesus is not the little peacekeeping brother. God in three persons is his own mediator. God the Father has appointed God the Son to mediate on behalf of those who are filled with God the Spirit. God the Father and the Son, they are one true God. They have the same passion, the same vision, the same desire, the same will. And that will and eternal plan is to cover the shame of one people, to draw them near to God himself, and to make them worship this one true God forever. When the Son speaks to the Father on our behalf, he is speaking to a willing audience because the Father has appointed him and he is ready and eager to hear what the Son has to say. What could the Son of God 
possibly ask his father on our behalf, which the father won't eagerly do for us. This is one God who is mediating on our behalf in God's incredible loving design. He has appointed his son to sit at his right hand so that he can always bring us to his attention. That's the design of God who loves us and has pursued us in the gospel. Jesus, he lives to intercede for us. He lives to bring God's attention to us. That kind of leaves us with a final question to ask. What exactly is Jesus bringing the attention to with his Father? What, if Jesus is talking about us, what, what is he saying to the Father? This past week I was with one a person from our church family who's incarcerated right now, and he's been in lockdown, which means he's been totally isolated. And I get to him, together with him about every other week, and we talk together, and I usually share with what I'm about to preach on so that he can track with us, even though he's not here in this room. And I explained this idea that Jesus, right now, intercedes for him. He's a believer, and Jesus now names him and prays for him. And my friend said, well, what does he pray for? (laughs) I love to hear that he's praying for me, but I'd like to know what he's asking the Father on my behalf. You know, the short answer to that question is John 17. Grab a hold of the chapter John 17, and you get a window into Jesus praying to his Father On our behalf. You get to listen to Jesus, the great high priest, pray for an entire chapter. Grab John 17, take it, meditate on it, study it, memorize that thing. You are hearing the Son pray to the Father. But let me just in a couple of minutes explain a little more how this is working right now. And let me start by saying this is how it doesn't work. This is what is not happening because this is my tendency to think this way. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus has been made like us in every respect so that he can sympathize with us in our weakness. We read that in 2. We read that in chapter 4. And so I begin to think that this is how I interact with Jesus based around my temptation. He's been tempted. He knows what it feels like to be tempted. He stands before his Father. When I am being tempted, if I have the wherewithal to pray, if in the middle of my temptation I can stop and I can pray and I can come to Jesus, which is a massive if, because in the middle of my temptation I enjoy being tempted and that is my least likely time to go to the Son in prayer and I typically don't do that at all. But if I do that, I have an opportunity to go to Jesus who is extremely busy because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But in my temptation, I can interrupt him and pull on his sleeve and say, Jesus, I'm really struggling with this temptation here. And Jesus is going to help me typically in the form of empathy. He's going to feel really sorry for me because he knows what it's like and he can understand me in my weakness. If that's what Jesus' intercession is, it's no wonder we rarely think about it. If that's all Jesus does on our behalf, it's no wonder we go throughout our Christian lives without a moment's thought that Jesus is appealing on our behalf. 
This is more to the point of what is happening between Jesus and the Father on our behalf. We get an example of this in Luke 22. It's a very vivid demonstration of Jesus praying on our behalf, but it happens in the life of the apostle Simon Peter. Simon Peter is going about his Christian life. He's actually kind of on the rise in his Christian life. Things are going well. They just had the triumphal entry. It kind of feels like Jesus is about to be crowned king. They just, in Luke 22, had an argument about who was the greatest disciple. I mean, things, things are going well for Peter, and he's kind of getting big for his britches. And Jesus pulls him aside and rocks his world when he says this to him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Simon, you don't realize this? You're kind of arguing with the disciples about who's the greatest. While all that's happening and all this movement is going on in your Christian life, the enemy is ready to devour you. And he would have done that. But I prayed to the Father that he would intervene and that your faith would not fail you. Now you look in on a window like that, you see a moment of Jesus' intercession on behalf of Simon Peter, And it's one of the most terrifying and encouraging things we could possibly hear as a believer. On the one hand, it's terrifying. No matter how many times the Bible tells us this, I forget that Satan is in the sifting and devouring business. Between Satan and demonic forces, between my own sin and my own doubt, there are things at work that threaten to snap my faith like a twig and they come at me every single moment of every single day. Whether I realize it or not, it is a terrifying thought to know just how fragile my faith is in the face of these forces. But on the other hand, no matter how many times the Bible tells me this, I forget that the Father anticipates all of these things, and because of that, he has appointed his Son who will live to intercede on our behalf so that our faith will not fail. I tell you that there is a battle raging. It's raging about your soul in this very moment. And if you sit here in this room right now and there is a speck of faith within you, I mean a faith that is smaller than a mustard seed, you have confessed your sins and trusted in Jesus and you know you do that right now but you don't know what tomorrow will bring, I tell you that that is only possible because the Son is seated at his Father's right hand and he intercedes for you. He prays for you that your faith may not fail. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know where you stand with God, but you find in yourself a speck of curiosity, what does this mean and what does this look like? And I want to know more about who this mediator is. I tell you that that is only possible because Jesus sits at his father's right hand and he prays for you and intercedes for you. 
Friend, if your name is written in the book of life, even now, that very name, your name, is being spoken between the Son and the Father. He speaks your name on your behalf before the living God because Jesus always lives to make intercession and to pray for your joy and to pray that your faith might not fail. Let's pray together. Father, it feels funny to add a prayer to the heaps of prayer that Jesus makes on our behalf. And so we humbly say thank you. Thank you that you have appointed your son to sit beside you and intercede on our behalf. Thank you that you have appointed your spirit to live within us that will confirm with our spirit that we are yours. Thank you, Father, that you pursue us and that you hold us and that you keep our faith from failing. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.